is God, God is the only one that can remove it. And if he chooses not to remove it, he's also the only one who has the ability to show us how to endure it. Actions have consequences. Sin has consequences. Particularly sin for which there has been no repentance. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, we find an example of God's discipline upon a people because of a sin that had been committed by a previous administration. The problem was that this particular sin had been swept under the rug rather than being dealt with. And God doesn't play the let's sweep it under the rug game. We should acknowledge at this point before we get any further that there are sometimes unpleasant circumstances in our lives that don't always indicate some underlying sin problem in the life of either an individual or a nation. Nor does material prosperity, on the other hand, indicate some underlying spiritual maturity or spiritual blessing. But it is wise, when faced with suffering, to ask ourselves, could this be a result of some unconfessed sin in my life? If we can examine ourselves and determine that there doesn't seem to be any unconfessed, unrepented of sin in the life, then perhaps that suffering is there designed to strengthen our faith and is therefore suffering for blessing. But that's not what's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 21. As chapter 21 opens, we find the nation that's in the midst of a three-year drought. For those living in an agricultural economy, this is akin to a stock market crash or an economic depression in today's terms. Things were bad, really, really bad in Israel at this time. When this famine occurs, we can't say for sure. There are some internal clues in the chapter that hint, they just hint, that the event may have happened earlier in David's reign. In other words, some would feel that chapter 21 is out of order, that it should have actually been inserted earlier on in the book. Not every Old Testament scholar agrees with that. And there are many Old Testament scholars that hold that these chapters are indeed in chronological order, meaning that this event would have occurred somewhere in the last 10 years of David's life. If that's the case, then David jumps from the frying pan of political difficulties into the fire of economic problems toward the end of his life. Fortunately for us, our understanding and application of this passage is not dependent upon knowing specifically when the event occurred. We can understand the message and then we can apply the passage independently of the chronology of the passage. With that introduction, let's look at the first two verses of chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Why he waits for three years to seek the counsel of the Lord, we're not told. But it's not really that shocking, is it? Far too often we wait 
when difficulties come, until all other possible avenues of relief had been exhausted, before we then approach God on our knees. We call our banker, our lawyer, our doctor, our neighbor, our friend, and if they can't help, then we call upon the Lord. So it's not that shocking that David waited, but better late than never. And David receives an answer to his inquiry about why this famine was occurring. And the answer is that something happened or something that happened years ago. No matter when we place the chronology of this, maybe even a generation ago, there's no scriptural mention of the event that's referenced here earlier in 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel. So if you're searching the recesses of your mind to try to remember when Saul slaughtered the Gibeonites, and you can't remember it, don't feel bad. It's not in the text. This is the only place that we have it recorded. But we know that Saul must have violated a centuries-old treaty with the Gibeonites, which was recorded in Joshua chapter 9, verse 15. If you'll recall, in the Exodus, when the Jews had come into the land, and the conquest had begun under Joshua. All the peoples of the land were supposed to be wiped out. And the Gibeonites heard of this. They, they heard of the early victories by Joshua and the Israelites. So they, being residents of the land, came up with this ruse that perhaps they could avoid annihilation. And many of you remember this story, but they came to Joshua and the leaders of Israel in old worn-out clothing with dust upon them and bread that was older and flaky and perhaps even moldy, looking as though they had come from a long, long journey from very far away. And they lied to Joshua and the leaders of Israel and told them that they had come from a great distance, and they therefore deceived them, them being the leaders of Israel, who, by the way, did not seek the Lord's counsel before form formulating a treaty with the Gibeonites. And so the Israelites were fooled into making a treaty to protect people that live within the land against God's wishes. But then again, it was a treaty. And they swore that treaty by the name of, the, of Yahweh, the Lord. So the Gibeonites tricked them. But it stood because they cut a covenant with them, and they cut it in the name of Yahweh. So they couldn't get out of it. And then Joshua chapter 9, 16, And it came about at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were neighbors. And they were living within their land. But there's nothing they could do about it after this contract had been signed. Since they had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Yes, the Gibeonites got them on a technicality. But the technicality stood as far as the Lord is concerned. That's the context that we find ourselves in in 2 Samuel chapter 21. Again, the specific incident isn't recorded in scripture as to what Saul did, all we know is it's for Saul in his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death, and that violated this centuries-old treaty. By the time this happens, that treaty is probably 400 years old, maybe 400-plus years old, but it still stood. In God's eyes, there was no justification for Saul violating that treaty. Then in verses 3 through 6, Thus David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? And how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do whatever you say. 
So they said to the king, the man who consumed us and has planned to exterminate us from remaining within the border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Now, this is a challenging passage, is it not? In the first place, one of the things I might want to read it with a bit of a different emphasis, and it may make sense. In verse 4, the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house. We don't want any money from him. Even though this may have happened decades earlier, they said, We don't want money. We want retribution. And then they said, Nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. We can't do that. You're the king. If we put someone to death in Israel, then we'd be charged with a crime. That's the implication. But David, you can put people to death in Israel. And that's what they demand. They demand the death of seven of the offspring of Saul, either his sons or his grandsons. That's a pretty heavy order. David sought to satisfy the Lord's demand for repentance from this nation by seeking from the Gibeonites just what they might require in restitution. When that restitution is made, David then expects the Gibeonites to go to Yahweh on on behalf of the people of Israel and ask Yahweh to bless Israel. Again, their demand is not for financial restitution, but rather an eye for an eye. As for the Mosaic Law, specifically, chapter 21, verses 23 through 25. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Part of the Mosaic Law, the law of retribution, that's what they want. So they want seven of the offspring of Saul to be given up to make up for however many of their people had been killed. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But that's not the entirety of the Mosaic Law, is it? No. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, the text reads, A son shall not be put to death for the sins of his father. So we have both of these that have to be balanced out. There is an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. God's the one that brought up the fact that this whole thing is because of the Gibeonite problem from years earlier. David goes and says, well, what do you want? They say, we want justice. We want retribution. We want seven of his sons. So David realizes that's part of the Mosaic law. But then on the other hand, being the king, he also knows another aspect of the Mosaic law is that you can't put the sons to death for the sins of the father. So what's going to happen here? How can this be reconciled ethically or morally? Because it has to be. If David was following God's law in this case, and it appears as though he is, he's consulted the Lord, his actions are not condemned, and when he's finished, the famine will be lifted. So we have to assume David did the right thing before the Lord here. Even though to us, you're probably thinking, now how in the world could he have done the right thing? He seems like he's about to execute seven innocent people because these people want him lifted up. But if this is the case, and David really is following both of these aspects of the Mosaic Law, both that the sons can't be executed for the sins of the father, but yet there needs to be retribution and justice, the only conclusion that we could be left with at all is to calculate that Saul's sons and grandsons, the one that were given over, were not completely innocent. Because they couldn't be executed if they were completely innocent. That would have violated the Mosaic Law, so David would have done the wrong thing. So we have to conclude that these sons and grandsons weren't completely innocent, that in some way they were not told they were complicit in the event where the Gibeonites were put to death. 
That's what we're left to assume if David is following the Mosaic law. And because the action is never condemned, the famine is lifted, and David had control from the Lord about it, that's what we're left to assume. I wish we had more information. You see, we don't have any information about that original event. We're just told that it happened. That's where everybody gets bogged down in chapter 21. And reams of paper have been printed on exactly how this could be handled morally and ethically. But if we assume, just assume with me for a moment, that David was doing the right thing, and he did follow the Mosaic Law, both aspects of it, the aspect in Exodus 21 for the retribution and justice, and in 24 that he couldn't execute innocent people, if that is the case, let's just, can we assume that right now? There's a much bigger point here in this chapter than how we can figure this out morally and ethically. I'm not downgrading that, but there's a much bigger issue here. In fact, the point of this whole narrative in this chapter is that God expects confession and repentance for past sins. Otherwise, there's going to be temporal consequences for those sins. The thing that we should learn from it, since we're not in that particular situation anyway, we're not under the Mosaic Law, so we're not going to have to try to ever be in a position where we figure out what to do under the law. That's not for us. But what's the bigger picture for us? The bigger picture is for us to understand that God expects confession and repentance of it, not just confession, but repentance as well, from past sins. And if we don't, there will be temporal consequences for those sins. Sometimes, repentance comes with restitution. That's also part of the Mosaic Law, as per Exodus chapter 21. Not just a confession of sin, but there had to be some restitution for the person who was wrong. You read that all through Exodus 21. When God brings an individual, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, into a right relationship with himself by grace through faith, that individual is forever forgiven from the eternal penalty of sin, which is condemnation, which means an eternity separated from the blessing of God. That's one way to put condemnation. Now, you can put it the negative way, eternity and the lake of fire. But another way to put it is eternity separated from the blessing of God. That's the eternal penalty for sin. Now, when we come to God with the empty hands of faith, recognizing that we have a need and that God's the only one that can meet that need, and we express our faith in Jesus Christ by grace through faith, the Father uses that faith and saves us. Remember, our faith itself doesn't save us. God saves us on the basis of our faith through grace, or by grace through faith. When that happens, we have been forever forgiven from the eternal penalty of sin. We can all agree on that, I hope. Once faith is exercised, the benefit of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross is applied to the individual. And I assume that's everybody in here tonight. I assume everybody in here has trusted Jesus Christ to forgive them their sins and to grant them eternal life. And that means you have been forgiven and you will never suffer the eternal consequence of the wrath of God. The God's wrath will never be poured out upon you. You are forever forgiven from the eternal penalty of sin. However, after salvation, we all continue to sin. Anybody that denies that is denying 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. We all continue to sin. Yes, the eternal penalty of sin has been paid by the death of Christ or by Christ on the cross, and it's been applied to the individual at the moment they exercise faith. But even after salvation, God is still holy, and sin still offends his holiness. Something is lost 
when we sin after salvation. But it's not our eternal life. You don't become recondemned. Another way to put it is not our position as sons and daughters, but our closeness as sons and daughters. You remain in the family, but there's a fellowship issue. Actions have consequences. And the consequence of post-salvation sin is a loss of fellowship in accordance with God's sovereignty. There also may be divine discipline that accompanies that loss of fellowship. We're taught in the New Testament that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let me pause. There are a few, and it really is only a few, that look at 1 John and they say that's not a verse for Christians. That's a verse that is speaking to unbelievers that tells us how to come to Christ. There are multiple problems with that exegetically. Multiple problems. But let me just bring up two. First John is written to believers. That's a pretty big one. But the second one is actually a much bigger difficulty for those who would like to make First John chapter 1 in particular a salvation verse from the eternal from the salvation from the eternal penalty of sin. And to understand that, I need to go back to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a very unique book. It's the only book in the Bible that has, as its expressed purpose in the text, the evangelization of the unbeliever. There are other books, many, many other places in Scripture, where we're told how we can be saved. But the Gospel of John is the only book in the Bible that has, as its expressed purpose in the text, the evangelization of the unbeliever. The Gospel of John revolves around seven miracles or signs that Jesus did during the course of his ministry. And then at the end of the book, at the end of John's Gospel, next to last chapter, John says, you know, there's a whole lot of other things Jesus did. As a matter of fact, there are so many other things that he did, he speaks hyperbolically, that if I wrote them down, all the libraries of the world wouldn't be able to contain them. Today we might say the Library of Congress couldn't contain the stories of all that Jesus did if I wrote them all down, all the miracles. But I just took seven. And what he concludes is, even though there were so many other things that Jesus did to demonstrate by not just his words, but his works that he was the covenant of the Messiah for Israel, there are these seven things. But even though there are so many more, these have been written, meaning these seven signs, these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you might have life through his name. Students of the New Testament are so happy when they get an assignment, tell us what the purpose statement for John's gospel is. Because John wrote it down for us. Now that's not the case in every book of the New Testament. Those of you that are students of the word of God in a more formal setting know that. It's more difficult when the professor might say, come up with a purpose statement for the book of Ephesians. Or the book of Colossians. Those are more difficult. can be done. Everybody's got to do it. Come up with a message statement. But John does it for us. So John tells us that his gospel is, or his gospel is written as a gospel tract to unbelievers to tell them how to get to heaven. Now, in John's gospel, there's but one condition that he ever gives for the receiving of eternal life. And it's not joining a church. It's not repentance from our sins. It's not changing our life or giving up alcohol or any of the things that people sometimes say we should do or give money or promise to be better. There's but one condition that the Gospel of John ever gives for the receiving of eternal life. In a book that was written for that purpose, 
And that's, that's tradition is faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. And depending upon the various authors that you read, somewhere between 75 and maybe 90 times, depending on how you read certain passages, that's the condition that's given for receiving salvation or eternal life. The only one, now follow me, if John's gospel is written for the express purpose of telling someone how to come to Christ, as opposed to, for example, the synoptic gospels, which are written to tell somebody how to come to Christ as a secondary purpose. The primary purpose is to tell believers how to be committed disciples. But John's gospel is unique. It has a purpose to tell people how to come to Christ. only gives you one condition. That's faith alone and the proper object. That's Christ alone. Then how do we handle it when we get over to 1 John? And he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If 1 John is written to unbelievers as a gospel tract, just like the gospel of John was, then we got a serious problem staring us right in the face. You see what it is. You follow me? If the gospel of John only gave one condition, and the stated purpose of the gospel of John was to tell you how to get saved, and that one condition was faith and faith alone, confession of sin is never mentioned there. Then we go over to the epistle of John, and if we're going to claim, as a very few do, not many, because people are smarter than that, but if some claim that 1 John is written to the unbeliever to tell them how to get to heaven, John just introduced a condition that he didn't mention in his gospel. So now we have a problem. We have a contradiction in the scripture. A, not a minor contradiction, a very serious contradiction. But it is no contradiction when we look at the audiences of both of those books. And when we realize the audience of the epistle of John is not an unbelieving audience, the audience of an epistle of John is a believing audience, then we realize when John says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, he must be talking about post-salvation sins. It's not that hard to figure that out because if you read through it and don't start at 1 John 1, 9, if you, if you start at the beginning of the book, you'll see that he is speaking to believers. And in that context, he apparently is speaking to some believers that don't think they sin after salvation. Or if they think they sin, there are no consequences to that sin. So he said, no, 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 no. If you say you don't sin, you're a liar after salvation. But here's the remedy for that. Just like the remedy for salvation and forgiveness from the eternal penalty of our sins was faith alone in Christ alone, done once. So also the remedy for the sins that we, that we can commit after salvation has but one condition, that's confession. There's one condition to be forgiven from the eternal penalty of sin, and that's faith. There's but one condition to be forgiven from the temporal consequences of our post-salvation sins, and that's confession. It makes no sense exegetically to confuse those two. It's actually poor method. It's a major mistake. So we're taught in the New Testament, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we're also taught that if we'll judge ourselves, we'll not be judged. That's a passage that if you've read ahead in 1 Corinthians, you know where that comes from. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll study that in a lot more detail in the not-too-distant future. But in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Corinthians were making a mockery of the communion service coming to the communion service in a state of drunkenness. They were gluttonous after the, the service began. And because of this, this might give us pause to ever participate in communion out of fellowship with God. Because they were abusing the sacred, 
Some are currently undergoing divine discipline. Some of the people in Corinth, because of what they were doing at the communion service, were sick. Some of them had died. Apparently what John refers to as the sin that leads to death. Because of an abuse of the communion service. I think if more people would read that, they'd be more careful with their communion service. In today's Christian culture, I guess anything goes in some circles. And there are some really borderline communion services taking place. I wouldn't do it. Because in Corinth, when they abused it, and granted, they abused it in ways that people aren't abusing it today. But they went way out of line and got drunk during the communion service, or came drunk, perhaps, where a glutton while they were there, they weren't waiting on everybody. It wasn't orderly. You wonder why we have everyone hold the cup until all have been served? It's 1 Corinthians 11. You wonder why we have everybody, some people hold the bread until all have been served and we do it in an orderly way? It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But because they weren't doing it, there were some that were under divine discipline with regard to illness and some that had died. God takes this communion service, this sacred, very seriously. So Paul explains the judgment that was passed out upon the Corinthians, which is equivalent to what we've been calling tonight divine discipline, could have been avoided or maybe avoided in the future if they would simply examine themselves. Later on the passage, he says, to judge ourselves. That's really what God wanted, the Lord wanted, David and the Israelites to do in 2 Samuel chapter 21. You've got to evaluate this, guys. You've got an unconfessed sin, a pretty major one, not necessarily individually, but nationally, and it was a different situation in Israel than it is with us. They were the people of God. They were the covenant people, so they were sinning as a nation. We do too, but not in the same way. But they weren't judging themselves. They didn't judge what they had done to be wrong. They just trusted under the rug. They just forgot about it. I hope you see where we are. When we are to examine ourselves or to judge ourselves, it means that we're to see our sins or our failures in the same way that God sees them. The Israelites needed to understand they were guilty before God. Just like we do when we sin, we need to understand we're guilty. We need to come face to face with our guilt. To use both language of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Testament and New Testament. They needed to confess their sin to God in an open acknowledgement that what they did was wrong. They couldn't just pretend that it never happened. Or that what happened happened, but there was nothing wrong with it and ignore it. Five of the most dangerous words in the English language are, maybe it'll go away. Now, that's dangerous in medicine. It's also dangerous in the spiritual life. I'm just going to act like it never happened. Maybe the consequences will just go away. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't play the sweep it under the rug game. Because Israel was a covenant community, because they were God's chosen people, they needed a national repentance before they would be the recipients of unfiltered national blessings. In this case, the leader of the nation, David, would have been the most likely person to bring the matter before God, which he did, finally. The famine motivated him to do it. God had to get his attention, not just his attention, but everybody's attention, and that's what divine discipline does. It makes life uncomfortable for us so that we go to God and say, you know what, I just realized 
it's been six months since I have come to you in confession of my sin. Or it's been six days. Or perhaps six hours. Whatever it may be. But the divine discipline gets our attention. So that we start examining ourselves and say, is there something that I've done that has violated God's holiness? And if there is, then I need to go before him and confess that sin. And to use New Testament terminology, I need to examine myself and judge myself. The judging myself says, I did wrong, Lord. What I did was wrong. And you might even say, yes, I know I deserve this discipline that I'm getting. But ordinarily, the king would have been the one to do that. And other times in Israel's history, a prophet or perhaps a priest would make confession for the people. Remember, we studied this a few times in the minor prophets, where the minor prophets would come, and they would make confessions for the people. But the point is, confession and repentance must be entered into. I'm assuming tonight that all of you keep relatively short accounts with God, meaning that you confess your sins regularly, and you ask God's help for repentance from that sin. Help me to turn away from it and not do it anymore, as per Psalm 51. If not, that's a practice you need to begin tonight. And I wouldn't wait till the end of the day. I know different people have different patterns, but sometimes people like to wait till their evening prayers and confess whatever sins they, they committed during the day. But if you think about that for a moment, if sin hinders the closeness that we have with God, and typically we will sin throughout the day. If you don't think so, come to me. We'll talk about what's sin and what's not sin. Maybe you need to be informed. If you wait till the evening to confess your sins, or to the weekend to confess your sins, heaven forbid, or to right before church starts on Wednesday or Sunday morning or Sunday night to confess your sins, heaven forbid, then you're spending a lot of unnecessary time walking out of fellowship with God. A lot of time that could be spent glorifying God is spent not glorifying God because we're waiting. Sins really ought to be confessed the moment we realize we did something. You're driving down the freeway, and like, like a lot of you ladies do, you just fuss at people with, as they're driving, you know, and threaten them and all the kind of stuff. That, you know, as soon as you realize you've done that, maybe it's time to not, not close your eyes, keep your eyes open, but you can confess the sin driving straight down the road. There's no need to say in the back of your mind, well, I'll wait till I get home for that one. Because then you're going to forget that and you'll do it. And that will be, you'll figure out, oh, that evening, oh, my goodness, you know what? I spent the last 12 hours out of fellowship with God. Life's too short for that. So let's make sure that if that is our habit, that we change that habit and keep short accounts with God. Not just in confession, but also in repentance. I know that's not a new teaching for most of us. Then in verses 7 through 14. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord, which was between them, between David and Saul's son. You all remember that. So the king took the two sons of Mishpah, the daughter of Ai, and Amni, and Mephibosheth, whom she had borne, a different Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together. And they were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Rizpah, the daughter of Ahi, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither birds of the sky to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. When it's told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Ahi, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went out and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, and the men of Jabesh Gilead, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshun, 
where the Philistines had hanged him on the day the Philistines struck down Saul and Gilboa. And he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan and his son there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin and Zillah, in the grave of Kish's father. And they did all that the king commanded, and after that, God was moved by entreaty for the land. Because of the promise to Jonathan, you'll recall, he spares Mephibosheth. But seven others are handed over to the Gibeonites, and they're hanged. Hanging in the ancient world would be like hanging today. It was a disgraceful way to die. And the custom in Israel was to take the hanged bodies down immediately and provide them with an appropriate burial. If you didn't take them down, then the body would be consumed by the beasts of the field or perhaps birds if the body was left up. It's a grotesque sight. But the text makes a point of saying that they were hanged before the Lord. The Lord has endorsed this action. The final verses of this section demonstrate that the consequences of sin are not isolated with the one who does the sin. Rizpah was the mother of two of the hanged offspring of Saul. And after they're hanged, she is in such grief, she refuses to leave the body. She won't let the bodies be taken down, but she makes sure that the birds of prey don't get them in the daytime and the wild beasts don't get them at night. And she mourns and mourns and stays with them until the rains come. What a gut-wrenching picture, image this is of a mother in mourning. And there's nothing that David can do to console her. But he made an effort at it by procuring what is left of the bones of Saul and Jonathan, which had been, you remember, abused by those who had taken them, by the men of Jabez-Gilead. And he takes these bones and gives them a proper burial in an effort to bring some comfort to this lady, Rizpah. This is a rather sad chapter, and it's meant to be. The ancient Israelites needed to be reminded that actions have consequences, and so do we. And they needed to be reminded that sin must be dealt with, not just swept under the rug.